again. It's Patrick Don Vito with the Film Editing Podcast at www.filmediting.com. And we have a very special guest today. I'm at the house of director Donald Petrie, director of movies like How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, Welcome to Mooseport, Miss Congeniality, and Mystic Pizza. And of course, we can't forget, coming out on the 12th is Just My Luck with Lindsay Lohan. Hi, Donald. How are you doing? Hi. How's it going? Don't forget Grumpy Old Man. Grumpy Old Man, of course. One of my favorites, too. That's one of my favorites as well. So where did you grow up? Well, I'm a bit of a show business brat. My father was a director. My mother is a producer, but we grew up in the New York uh, scene. I was born in New York, and my father directed uh, live television back in the 50s. And um, uh, now New York was home base, but we moved a lot. Wherever dad was directing, we went. So it was New York, London, New York, L.A., New York, London, New York, L.A. I think I went to five elementary schools, three (laughs) junior highs, and three high schools. Uh, And by then, I was so used to it, I went to five colleges. So, (laughs) so. Is that tough as a kid, going jumping around like that? You know what? That Ask a kid who was born blind, what is it? Is it tough? Uh, I didn't know any better. Now, on the other hand, when I would visit a friend, you know, and I'd be listening to records in his room, and I'd say, so how long have you lived here? He'd say, 17 years. I'd say, oh, my God, aren't you (laughs) bored to tears? I, I, I couldn't even relate to being more than two years in a single space. How did you first get into filmmaking? Obviously, your father was a director. What was your first foray into? As a kid, were you in any of his movies as well? The funny thing is, Dad was a director, but we really... I I think I remember my first memory of, you know, go to work with your dad day kind of thing when you're about, I don't know, eight years old and your dad says, hey, you want to go to work with me, see what I do? It was boring. (laughs) You had to be quiet. You couldn't run around and play. And the and and the, the the thing that scared the poop out of me was that for the first time in my life I realized that not all things are real. I happened to lean against a wall that was a set wall that was just leaning there, and I practically <laughs> knocked it over. And and up until then, my ever if a wall was there a wall was a wall and here i walked up to a door and the door opened and it there was no room there it was fake i didn't i didn't understand that there was this other world but generally growing up we were the, my whole family i have an older brother and uh, two younger sisters and we were kept pretty much uh, regular normal school out of the show business. My parents were not into the Hollywood party scene by any means. <laughs> and as as far as being in show business, as far as you said, did I do any acting in my dad's movies? There was one strict rule in our family. I mean, my parents were as lenient as you can get, but no acting professionally till you're out of high school. Mm. Don't even ask. Don't go there. Um, all the theater you want in high school or junior high. I went to I went to music and arts summer camp. I, I got the acting bug at about twelve years old. I found 
you know, when, when, when you move as much as I did, you have to make friends fast. So I kind of became the funny guy. A, it kept me out of fights. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but also it allowed me to meet people sure. quickly, uh, being the kind of class clown. And that class clown thing, some, you know, one of those friends said, hey, they're, they're doing a play in the, you know, high school theater. It was junior high, actually. And I kind of went, oh, okay, I'll check that out. And I still have friends from that very first play where I had one line and a walk-on part. I still have friends wow. today. And, and I realized that I could sit in math class for a year and not know the kid next to me. But you do one show and you have friends for life. So it really bit me big time. And I, from, that, from then on, I was an actor, you know, year-round, 24-7. I was, I was always involved in that. So you graduated from high school, and then what was your first real acting experience? Um, you know, I, uh, I graduated from high school, and in college, I'm still doing the theater thing. I, I, I went first out, out of high school. I, I got into USC, and I had this idea that I would be a film major and study that. And when I, when I got there and I realized they weren't going to hand me Panavision and a Union crew in my <laughs> freshman year at USC, I went, oh, to heck with this. And I left, and I went to City College, of all things, Santa Monica City College, and just did theater. I, I find that... Um, a lot of a lot of uh, young people in in the college theater thing get this feeling. Well, I'm not ready yet. I'm going to wait until I graduate, and then I'll become an actor. And I found that you know you're never going to be ready if you have that <laughs> attitude. And fi- frankly, you never are ready. So so just go for it. Because yeah. first year in college, I just said, oh well, I'm going to try to get an agent and. And my first job was playing a uh, a cocaine buying marine <laughs> on a on a television show called Joe Forrester, which was a spinoff of like Police Story, and Lloyd Bridges played the the uh, the cop Joe Forrester oh, who man. busts me for buying coke. Man, that was that was pretty tough. Pulling back to all your previous experiences yeah, so with all my previous <laughs> druggy experience of which there was zero um, that's great so when did you make the transition when did you decide that directing was the direction you wanted to go well that that actually happened um almost by accident as a professional actor you know the old joke with professional actors is you say oh you're an actor at what restaurant <laughs> um and uh I I did make a a choice as an actor. All those other jobs you do to support yourself between your acting gigs, they were all show business connected. I worked um, tearing tickets in a movie theater. I (laughs) sold uh, tickets, uh, built sets at at various legit theaters in town, worked on crews backstage, worked as a PA. It was always show business. I never waited tables. I never worked as a secretary uh, because at least I felt I was somehow sticking to show business. I directed. Well, at first it started with teaching. Mm -hmm. I got asked. I guess they had a a teacher 
take pregnancy leave or something at the local high school that I had actually gone to. And they came to my father and asked him, did he know anyone who could pick up and teach drama for the rest of the year? And he said, well, what about my son? <laughs> and, wow. and I ended up teaching high school drama and thus directing the plays. Oh. And the more and more I was directing the plays, I then started directing equity waiver plays. But I usually would direct something I could also play a part in. Oh. You know, mm-hmm. So it was kind of a showcase for myself. Uh, then I got a call one day, and they said, we're doing the West Coast premiere of a play. And I said, oh, great, uh, You know, send me the script. And they sent me the script, and I read it, and I'm going, these guys are all like New York Italians. I- I'm like this waspy white guy you know, from the <laughs> suburbs. Um, what part do you want me to play? Oh, we don't want you to play a part. We want you to direct. And mm. I, at the same time, I was kind of disappointed (laughs) at the same time i was oh okay i'll do that well the play was supposed to run for four weeks and ran for four months it just went great and that i would say by the time i did that i'd been out of college for three four years and my dad actually was teaching at the american film institute and he said to me donald why don't you check out the afi and the thought of going back to school at age 28 or 29 <laughs> is just abhorrent. And yet I went up there and I checked it out and I said, yeah, I should give this a shot. And not only did I I commit to AFI, but I committed to the career change. I actually called my agents and said, I'm not acting anymore. I'm directing. And I think that was kind of to force myself economically. (laughs) If I couldn't make money as an actor, where was I going to make money? I had to get a directing job. (laughs) So so I did the two-year program at AFI. That, out of AFI, your second year, you make your kind of your thesis film. Mm -hmm. Short film, must be under half an hour. And that film got a lot of attention it got me an agent and the agent sent it to steven spielberg and steven spielberg watched the film and basically uh, called the two guys who were producing this brand new show for him called amazing stories it was an amazing show because never before had a show up front been picked up for 24 two seasons wow of episodes and an anthology series so you don't have a regular cast going through you you're just it's a new show every week but he said to them hire them then they could have hired me 2 years later for episode 24 for all i knew luckily a, a director and i'll always thank him jeff blechner Jeff Blechner was doing episode 10 of Amazing Stories, and he got a big, bigger gig. He got a miniseries. <laughs> so he left with very short notice. Well, who can we get, you know, on the spur of the moment? Oh, call Petrie. And, uh, and I had to go read the script. You know, Spielberg projects are usually kept under such tight wraps. Every page of every script has your name stamped across it, so you <laughs> cannot Xerox it without them knowing who did it. And uh, so I had to go down there, read the script, meet the producers. Luckily, because I, you know, on your first gig, 
you don't always get handed a brilliant script. You sometimes get handed a POS and have to make something out of it. Luckily, I got a great, great script called Mr. Magic, and it was to star Sid Caesar. So uh, from the get-go, I was working with a major star, a great actor, with a great script. What a great... And for Spielberg, of all things... What a great send off into the business. That's amazing. You know, you were working at Universal then, right? Because he was. Well, was I, that- had, I had gotten a job off of my AFI film. They had a program at Universal then. You know the famous story about Spielberg, how he used to sneak onto the lot? Yeah. He, yeah. he bought a Brooks Brothers suit and just <laughs> went past the guard and waved every morning. Yep. And they thought he must have been somebody's son, so they let him in. <laughs> that inspired Universal at the time to have a program for people out of film school. And I think I earned mm. 400 bucks a week. But I had no job. My job was entree to observe on any show shooting on the universal lot they would make the introduction and i could wander onto the set and watch and learn and now i could have never showed up and collected my 400 bucks a week but i figured if if i've got that opportunity man i'm gonna take advantage of it and i was there before anybody else in the morning and i didn't leave until everybody else left (laughs) and and i took that thing on like a voracious learning experience. And I think the only way to really observe for a director is you have to pretend you're directing the project. So Mm -hmm. I would go to the individual directors that I was observing and I would say, would you let me follow you around in prep? Would you let me follow you in post? Mm -hmm. Where most observers just show up to the set and watch for a few hours. I don't know how you get anything out of that. It's not in context. Mm -hmm. I always prided myself on the fact that if that director drops dead, I'm ready. (laughs) I could take over right now. (laughs) Um, and, uh, and, And that's basically when I got the call from Spielberg, I was ready. (laughs) That's great. How long was it from that point? Uh, You directed a bunch of TV. The Equalizer, I think, was one of your Well, let's see. You know, I get asked by students often, you know, from the time you graduated film school, (laughs) how long till your first job? (laughs) When I graduated AFI, I actually looked up all the the students who'd graduated before me and looked up their first job. And generally, there was a five-year gap between hmm. graduation and first job. And I went, oh, my God, what am I going to do for five years? <laughs> Mine, I took three. So I was kind of proud of that. It was, th- it was a three-year gap from graduation to actually getting that first job on Amazing Stories. After that, they can, kind of came fast and furious. I, I went from that to an after-school special. Remember those? Mm, oh, yeah. And then after that... Uh, there was this brand new show called MacGyver. <laughs> um, and I did episode four. And then The Equalizer. I just launched into doing television. I truly believe in this business. Work begets work. Even when I was an actor, my agent would say, you don't want to do a two-line part. You hold out for you know the guest starring role. I'd say, nope. If they're offering me two lines, that director may see me for this. And next week, he'll have a better job. So 
I always took the job. I guess that's kind of like Michael Caine, you know? (laughs) That's true. He's one of those guys, and I guess it's part of that English training. It's a work ethic, really. So then the first feature you directed, which was Mystic Pizza, how did that come about? I found in just even in television that you you know how you've heard of typecasting? Mm Mm-hmm. You don't think of certain actors as as a dramatic actor. They only do comedy. And you certainly don't think of some dramatic actors as funny. Yeah. Typecasting, I think, happens to directors even faster. Mm. You are mm. your last show. Yeah. Uh, if you direct drama, that's what they think of. If you direct a horror movie, that's what you are thought of as. Yeah. So I was very conscious of that, that whatever I chose for my first feature, I was going to get stuck in that genre for a long time, so I better as well like it. <laughs> <laughs> and indeed, I, that was not the first feature offered me. Hmm. I had been offered at least three or four pictures before that. Hmm. And they were usually of the low-budget horror, how many teenagers <laughs> on a train from Boston to New York can die, you know, <laughs> horrible deaths. How Were any know, of those, uh, like, the movies we'd know? Or? Uh, you know, I think one got made, uh, but I honestly can't remember the title. It was to star... You know, Gary Busey is the guy who gets out of jail and returns home to his little town that's been overrun by motorcycle gangs. And I'm reading this and I'm going, oh, man, I don't want to, you know, and I skip to page 90 and it's that the, the description was he throws the knife and it goes thunk into the bad guy's eye and pins into the wall. And I went, no, not for me. Well... Well, because of that, being choosy about the projects, I actually got sent two scripts in one day by the same producers, these young guys, Mark Levinson and Scott Rosenfeld. They had been producers just before this on this little bitty picture called Home Alone. (laughs) Um, (laughs) At any rate, they kind of had their own deal now, an independent deal, and sent me a script that was a sci-fi horror movie uh, called The Weapon, this alien weapon lands on Earth and the burned-out demolition guy who has to go up against the weapon. And I'm reading it, and I'm just <laughs> dying here. But they had also said, and they were very upfront with me, we've also got this other little picture we're going to throw in there, but yeah, yeah, we really want you for the weapon. Well, this other little script was this thing called Mystic Pizza about, you know, three best friends growing up in Mystic, Connecticut and coming of age story, girls coming of age story. And I loved it. I just went, if I, if I have to direct something that's, that, that, that can, can guide my career the way I want it to go, this is the kind of project it had it, it made you laugh it made you cry it it had comedy it had drama it had angst it 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 just was very full for me so i went into them and they said so hey how'd you like the weapon <laughs> i went yeah well you know it's okay well how about mystic pizza and they went oh that ship has sailed <laughs> 
I went, what? They said, well, Sam Goldwyn has lined up three women directors and he's meeting them all tomorrow. I said, just get me the meeting, guys. Please, just get me the meeting. And I, I, I forever, when I tell this story, I ask forgiveness <laughs> of women directors because I was brutal. I mean, I went in there and Sam Goldwyn, who I, I, I still think of as a mentor, as almost a father figure, Sam Goldwyn Jr. I mm -hmm. mean, anything that's not of the mainstream, that's quality, that gets made these days, it's Sam Goldwyn. Um, Squid and the Whale being the latest one. He's just, he's just, you know, has such great taste. First of all, I did say what was truth, that I grew up with two younger sisters who were so like this, and I described how I really knew. But I also then said, and do you really think a woman can be objective about this? Whereas I, being a guy, I can, you know, and I, I kind of put into every fear he had, <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, But at any rate, I got the job and we developed it. I also think that uh, Sam had a leap of faith in me, but he also had a great leap of faith in the movie itself mm. because we had a lot of stars who wanted to do those parts. We got calls from name actresses saying, I love this movie. But most of them were kind of name actors from television. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to name them, obviously. Yeah. But um, I felt that that would bring baggage to it. Mm -hmm. uh, if the star of this sitcom was all of a sudden playing Daisy in Small Town Mystic. Mm-hmm. So I went to Sam and I said, can I cast all unknowns? Now, you try to do that in, in any independent today and forget about it. Yeah. You're, it's just not going to happen. You're going to be making that movie on your credit card. Yeah. Uh, but then he had the wherewithal and the faith to say, Yes, I get it. I see how you don't want baggage. You want them to be thought of as the character. Mm -hmm. So he said, go for it. And luckily, you know, I got the, the most amazing cast. The most experienced actress in the thing was the youngest one. <laughs> Annabeth Gish, at uh -huh. 16 years old, had played the lead in a couple movies. Was she only 16 in that? During she that? was 16. Wow. And yet, in some ways you know, wise beyond her years, very mature for a 16 year old. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. I, I'll never forget because, uh, I got to call, she had a quite a steamy romance scene in the movie with, with uh, Billy Moses and, you know, they're kissing and passionate and she starts <laughs> unbuttoning his shirt and they start kissing again and, you know, lie down out of frame and, and the night before we were going to shoot this, I get this call from the downstairs in the hotel. We all stayed in the same hotel, the Mystic Hilton, you know, get this phone call. And she goes, Donald, um, could you come down here and maybe explain to me and my mom <laughs> what your ideas for this scene are tomorrow? And I like it flashed oh, no. before my eyes. I had kind of forgotten that she's only 16. Wow. 
So uh, so I went down, and there she's sitting with her teddy bear on her lap, oh, no. you know, and I'm going, oh, my God. Oh, dear. And, uh, and yet, uh, you know, she was wonderful, wonderful in the scene. And then, of course, uh, we found uh, Lily Taylor, who yeah. is just fabulous. And then literally the role of Daisy, which was so difficult because she was the brassy, sexy one, but at the same time, the most vulnerable. That was so hard to find. Mm -hmm. And and it was about two weeks before shooting. We still hadn't found anyone. And this gal came in to read this Julia Roberts girl. I hear she's, you know, and, decent uh, <laughs> Wow. I just kind of went, wiped my forehead and went... <sighs> I found my girl. You know, I just That's great. was was thrilled. I was just watching the movie recently on cable, and it got to the end, and the credits go by, and I and I see Matt Damon, and I went, Matt Damon was in that film, I, and I, so I had to go back with my TiVo and go backwards and try to find him. If I blinked, I would have missed him. Yeah, in the scene near the, uh, I guess it was near the end of the movie, at the dinner table, dinner table, at, and uh, I didn't even recognize him. Yeah. Was that like his first uh, that thing? He got his SAG card. Really? Matt Damon came in <laughs> to play Steamer, <laughs> the younger brother. I saw that in the credits. The, I'm going, Steamer? Guy. I don't even remember. Steamer, who is that? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, the wonderful kind of upper crust family that she has to have dinner <laughs> with, and he ruins the dinner. Uh, yeah, he had two lines. And not only that, because he was so young, child labor laws we were shooting those scenes at night, night uh, for night, mm -hmm. two nights, all night long. And of course, at his age, they'd say you'd have to be done by midnight. And we had to go and actually get permission for him to stay up late so oh. we could shoot the scene with him. Oh, that's amazing. And Vincent D'Onofrio, had he, when you cast him, had Full Metal Jacket come out yet? Full Metal Jacket he had filmed. But uh -huh. it had not come out yet. Uh -huh. And the funny thing was, in the editing room, my editor had seen that movie, Full Metal Jacket, and was so impressed by that young guy. She she took a For Your Consideration ad and had it up in the editing room and didn't make the connection that that's who she was wow. editing in the movie because he looked so different. Wow. He, you know, he had gained like 40 pounds for that puffy face, and he's got bald head and there's that evil look on his face wow i mean she didn't even make the connection but he, he seems to be like amazing amazingly uh hidden almost in a lot of his roles he kind of hides you don't even realize he's in the movie sometimes i think that's the greatest kind of career to have i think yeah. vince d'onofrio amazing he's very method mm -hmm. um he's kind of like Pacino and, and, and Hoffman, you know, and those kind of actors who, who have, to, have to so get in the skin of the character that we had a couple days lined up at the beginning of that shoot for rehearsal and everyone arrived in town. And uh, after one rehearsal, I realized, ooh, this was not, the thing to do with Vince. So I went to him and I said, I'm not going to have you rehearse. And I saw this relief in his eyes. <laughs> wow. And I said, but I am going to get you all your wardrobe and I want you to wear it 24-7. And I'm sending you on a fishing boat to go lobster fishing for a couple of days. Wow. So you can... And he's like, yes! Oh, this is great! 
you know, that method actor thing. And it, it was wonderful. That's great. Now, one of my favorite films that you've done is Grumpy Old Man. Just makes me laugh every time I see it, still to this day. Matthew and Lemon, I mean, just working with them, was that just an amazing time? Well, to get the the opportunity, the honor, the privilege of of working with those guys is was beyond my wildest dreams. Now, you know, that script was like written for them. Uh even so, it took uh over a year to even get you know, between availabilities and the studio and being unsure about whether that would work. Hmm. I mean, the studio was actually wondering, do we really want Lemon and Mathau? Wow. But I kept holding out for them. And when we finally got the the green light, I, you know, I like waited because we needed frozen tundra, <laughs> you know, for the ice fishing. So I'd missed a season, so I came back the next year to, to make the film. The fascinating thing I found about Lemon and Mathau was that they were almost polar opposites in the way they worked. Hmm. Uh, Jack loved to rehearse. If you didn't rehearse with him, he would go to the AD and he'd say, about 20 minutes before you think you're going to need me, call me so I can go on the set. And I'd see him just wandering the set, kind of whispering himself, okay, now I'm just going to say, okay. He's doing his lines. He's practicing every hand movement and what he's going to do. Walter, whoo, Walter, you had to call 20 minutes to the set early you know because he would be goosing every young lady on um, hey baby how you doing you know as he as he comes to the set and then take one take two take three whoo wildly different the wonderful thing about them together is that walter forced jack out of his pre-rehearsed notion of the scene mm-hmm. he he wasn't able it 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 kind of yanked him alive I whereas see. jack grounded walter walter was so all over the place but with jack he got centered so the two of them actually together and you know there's about a four minute outtake sequence at the end mm-hmm. of that movie you know why that works that outtake sequence what is that they never break character. Oh. If they forgot their lines, they'd speak in pig Latin <laughs> at each other. Well, frame a dimmer, gummy, gummy, gummy. And they just keep going on in the scene, but they wouldn't break character. <laughs> Where usually you see an outtake and the person just laughs or cracks up or something. They, they wouldn't do that. That's great. And knowing those guys, we were constantly setting up. I, I would never, I learned never to say cut. Mm. I just would not say cut. Cause who knew what wacky genius thing I would get at the end of a scene. And indeed the, the outtakes at the end of that movie, I think there were about 45 minutes worth of wow. outtakes most of which were X-rated, mind you. Uh, <laughs> do you have a, a reel of that somewhere? <laughs> somewhere, I do, actually. I'd love to see that. But then, you know, we, we got it down to just the, the, you know, little three and a half, four minute one. That's amazing. And, you know, Burgess Meredith in those outtakes, just going on and on about, you know, the different uh, 
different ways to say sex. Oh, yes. Just bust me up. And uh, was he okay with doing that? Was he really cool about, you know, Well, the funny, thing, the funny thing with Burgess was I almost didn't cast him. Hmm. Um, I had met him. I'd gone to his house at around, you know, Christmas time. We were due to start shooting in February or something like that. And I went to his house to meet him. And he said, hey, come on in here. Uh, look at this up on the wall. That's a poster from High Tour. Did that on Broadway, 1925. Uh, you know, and then he came up to me and he said, here, got something for you. And he handed me a Christmas card. I opened it and said, Burgess Meredith. <laughs> you know, I mean, he just, but he handed me a Christmas card. And then two minutes later, he says, eh, meet the wife, you know. And then I gave that Christmas card, didn't I? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Well, he asked after about the fifth time, him asking me, I gave him that Christmas card, didn't I? I went, oh, my God. What am I? Oh, this is. How am I going to work this? You have to realize that the original role was a guy who was like 90. First of all, you had to be Jack Lemon's dad. I mean, Jack was 75 or so. I'm mean, 70. <laughs> So to be Jack Lemmon's dad in the movie, you had to be ancient. Yeah. Not many actors fit that bill that could <laughs> still move. Uh, one quick story was we met George Burns. Wow. To do the part. And he came over. We met him at his club where he's playing gin, you know. <laughs> and he comes over to where we're with his two, his agent and his manager. And... And he comes over, he tells a few jokes, says, uh, well, I hope you like me and maybe I'll do your movie and goes back to his gin game. And we sit and have lunch with the agents. The agent looks at us and he goes, I read your script. <laughs> this takes place in Minnesota in the wintertime. It's like 20 below. Says the man's 93 years old. <laughs> This could kill him. So it's going to cost you. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I thought that was the greatest line from an agent I'd ever heard. That's... This could kill him. So it's going to cost you. That's so funny. At any rate, I really did think that. I I did not want to be the guy who killed <laughs> George Burns, American icon. Oh, no. So I didn't cast him because of that. I just did not want to be the guy who killed him. Burgess I could kill. <laughs> uh, 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 the first day on the set, uh, Walter goes into the to the uh, makeup room, sees Burgess, says, Burgess, live till the end of the movie. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, But Burgess, the role had been written as sharp as a tack. Mm. And Burgess couldn't remember his name from time to time. I wow. mean, he was, now I'm exaggerating, yeah. but but in a joking way. Yeah. So I basically just rewrote the role uh -huh. with Mark Stephen Johnson, who's the most brilliant writer. We rewrote it that he'd ask a question and when he gets answered, he says, well, what are you telling me for? You know, he, like, he doesn't remember that he even asked the question. As far as uh, memorizing lines, the day I hired Burgess, I also hired Barney McNulty. Uh, who is that? He's a behind-the-scenes expert. He was Bob Hope's cue card guy. <laughs> I needed the best cue card guy in the business. So I hired him, and he was so... I mean, we had cue cards 
placed where any anywhere Burgess <laughs> wanted to look. There might have been five guys out there with all the same oh cue my. cards, any direction, so so that he could look wherever he needed to in the scene and still get his lines. Even then, it was it was rough. As far as those outtakes at the end, yeah, all we did was change the cue card, <laughs> and he just read them. He just came up and went. <laughs> Looks like Chuck's taking the wild baloney pony or, you know, whatever. He'd just read what was on the card. And, and the funny thing was the, the line that was originally scripted, it, 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 for those of you who haven't seen the, the film, um, Jack Lemmon is looking out his window and sees Ozzie Davis going up to Ann Margaret's house. He's been the first one brave enough to ask her for a date. Mm. And he goes up to her house and is welcomed in. And Jack Lemmon is distraught by this. If only he'd had the guts to ask her. And up comes Grandpa, played by Burgess Meredith, who says, Looks like Chuck's going to ride the wild baloney pony or... Whatever other you looks like he's gonna put the hot dog in the bun. <laughs> well, the original line scripted, I found offensive. It was, um, uh, looks like Chuck's gonna take the skin boat to Tuna Town, <laughs> and I went, oh, I, you just. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just didn't think you could you you could say skinboat to tuna town <laughs> and not offend every woman in the place. Uh, I just found it just horrible. And I asked Mark Steven to come up with you know some alternates. And then we got the idea we just put the list up in the Teamsters room and all the drivers <laughs> And the crew That's great. were coming up with ideas for what these lines were. And then rather than pick one, we did them all. Oh, wow. And, and uh, we ended up with, looks like Chuck's going to take old one-eye to the optometrist. <laughs> and the reason I went with that one <laughs> is because most of them, uh, looks like Chuck's going to bury his boner. You just go, oh, but with one eye to the optometrist, you went, huh? Oh, <laughs> and I like the little, huh? Oh, better than just, oh. Well, there's part one of the interview with Donald Petrie. Thanks again to Donald so much. It's always fun to hear your stories and it was fun to hang with you. Next week, I'll be posting part two of the interview and part two, we talk about editing. We also talk about Just My Luck how to lose a guy in 10 days, and also Miss Congeniality. Tune in next week for that. And if you have any questions or comments, please email me at patrick at filmediting.com or you can call our comment line, and that number is 206-202-AVID, 206-202-2843. Also, if you haven't had a chance to put your name on our Frapper map, please do so. You can go to the podcast page, and there's a link to our Frapper site. Go to that, and it's great to see where everyone is listening from also, you can vote for us at Podcast Alley. There's a link on the main podcast page as well. After this, I'm not sure who I'll be interviewing next, but keep an eye on the blog page. And when I get a chance to interview someone, I'll announce it on the blog page, uh, usually a week or two in advance, and you'll be able to ask questions to that person. So keep an eye out for that. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk soon. <laughs> <laughs>